Welcome, everyone, to this week's Limited Upside live chat on the Locker Room app. I'm Mike Prada. Ben Epstein is on his way. He's going to be coming soon. We've already got a number of people set up. I see a couple speaker requests. Uh, And for those of you who are listening on the podcast afterwards uh, who didn't catch this live, we thank you so much for having us. Know that we do these Locker Room live chats every Tuesday at 3 p.m., and we also post uh, on the podcast feed afterwards. If you like this stuff, rate, review, give us five stars, all that cool stuff. Um, today's topic for discussion, sometimes we have an official topic. And you can ask any question you want in the chat. You can um, ask any question on Twitter. You can even ask me about stuff that's not basketball, although I don't know why most people would care unless it's basketball or Star Wars. Uh, you can ask Ben. Any of those sorts of things. Uh, but this week, we actually have a topic I wanted to discuss. It's something that I've seen a lot of momentum growing on the internet. Uh, on Maybe just because it's the all-star break just happened and we're sort of bored. It's something I'm thinking a lot about because it's very much the subject of my book that is coming out sometime next year, if I ever get around to writing it, which is this sort of, is this style of play uh, something that we like as fans in the NBA or is the NBA really in a great place? Uh, this style of play is a very broad term. I think I'd love to talk about sort of more big picture uh, presentation issues or gameplay issues, either of them goes, but I think the most thing that this is the style of play is defined by is very much all the threes that are being attempted and the offensive numbers just going up, 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 up and up. Uh, to levels we haven't seen. So the question, of course, is, is this, have we gone maybe too far past, you know, where the game was maybe 20 years ago when it was too slow? So that's the subject for today. I want to hear from people who don't actually cover this game for a living. Obviously, if you do, that's cool, too. I want to hear from you, too. But sometimes I wonder if, like, we as the writers, we as the people who watch so much basketball are perhaps overthinking and over kind of compensating the degree to which this is a problem or really even like a great thing. Like I don't think most normal basketball fans necessarily think about the state of the game, the way that someone like I probably do way too much. So I want to hear from those who just sort of, you know, has this game been more, more or less fun to watch than it has been in the past. Do you find yourself more or less entertained by the average game? I'm really curious to hear that. So Ben's going to come on soon, and we're going to talk about this more. But it looks like we've already got a speaker request. Uh, who we got here? Hi, Mike. I'm Shavan. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. What's up, man? I've been a huge fan of your, like, Substack and a listener of your podcast. That's I appreciate that. What uh, What do you think about the state of play right now? So I have thought about several issues you mentioned a lot, and I have done some rooms, locker rooms, actually discussing about these things. So one thing what I found was that if you see the age group of people complaining, they're generally more than like 45 years old or 40 years old. And people like me who are around 25 or 20 or even younger don't care about these things because we like the game as it is right now. So do you think it's entirely generational then? It's not entirely generational, but I think it's mostly generational. Like, I don't, I, I don't know why some people have a strange fascination with the 1990s Knicks and the Heat. <laughs> That's yeah. strange for me. I have started watching NBA in 2012. 2012, I think, okay. I think the game is good. And there are some parts which you can improve, but I don't think 
I think like there was an article by I forgot whom the ESPN article which wanted Kevin. to restrict trees. Yeah, those things should not be there. It's like uh, it's like the MLB restricting the use of like uh, a shift. It's which this, I, it's like similar thing. Yeah, which I believe they are actually doing right. Isn't I, I'm not a huge baseball fan, but I thought I read that they're looking at potentially limiting the yeah. shift. Yeah, so, they're doing that. But that's I. I think all these things are counterproductive. Like the game will ebb and flow in a natural way, and I think mm-hmm. like defenses like will adjust. And I don't think it will be a problem in like two or three years. So you you said you've been watching basketball since 2012. Um, mm-hmm. What have you? What do you think as far as is the game better than it was in 2012, or worse, or the same? I think it's better because like more and more teams are running like diverse offenses. Like people are saying threes, but I think actually teams are running like diverse offenses. Yeah, I mean that's and an there's interesting... a lot more motion offense right now. Before like I think before only the Spurs used to run motion offense, and now like many teams are running motion offense. Yeah, your point about diversity is interesting because obviously one of to your what like you mentioned one of the things that that critics of the modern game or people who maybe think that things have gone too far are pointing to the three-point shots and a lot of these other things as saying there's not enough diversity in the game. Uh, But what you're saying is actually the opposite, that if you look at how they're getting their points, you think there is actually a lot of diversity in the game. Mm -hmm. Um, Why is there a disconnect there, do you think? Uh, Again, I think it's entirely generational. (laughs) <laughs> you think it's gener- so it's interesting the generational thing is interesting because so i'm 33 mm-hmm. uh so i'm precisely in the middle of yes. <laughs> your age ranges uh and i i grew up on the nba and nbc and i've talked a lot about how i loved that era uh in terms of presentation uh and that's kind of what i was growing up on and i think there's no question that whether it's with music whether it's with any sort of culture your most your most intense feeling always comes from what you like when you're late teens, early twenties, you know, there is a sense of nostalgia that ticks in when you get older, but you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we're having this conversation in 10, 15 years, you're going to be the one saying, man, I really loved it when the game was great in 2015, 16, you know, what you <laughs> raised on it at that age group always has a little more intensity. Uh, but to I it. think it's how you consume the content too. So like, like me, I listened to a lot of good podcasts, like the Dunker Spot, your podcast, other like niche podcasters, uh, like Sense and Scalability by Premium Hoops and some of the Substacks. And if you can't, consume the con- NBA, current NBA content in an intelligent way, I think you look at things in a different and appreciate the nuances of the game. Yeah. Well, I think that's, I think that's very nice of you to say. Uh, one, of, you know, one of the things I, I think has happened uh, is I said this on a podcast once and sort of it got some pushback uh, from, I forget who we had on the, the show I, one time. I think that there are elements of the game that have become Almost the game itself was a very simple game, but I think it's become more complicated than it was in the nineties with the, in a good, I think in a good way, like I love the complexity of zone D of the way defense has evolved and the way offenses has evolved to address that. I totally agree with you that like, if you just look at three point 
attempts as like a means of stylistic diversity, like you're just missing everything that goes into what those shots are, how those shots are created. You know, we've got spot up threes, step back threes, off the dribble threes. We've got all sorts of different people hitting all sorts of different shots. We've got threes from really right on top of the line, threes from behind the line, uh, threes that come from certain actions, threes that come from different actions. You know, there really is a lot of ways you're creating the same shot. Um, mm-hmm. But I do, I do think that starting with the zone defense rules being loosened 20 years ago, if you watch an old game, I think it's a lot simpler to kind of see there's less movement, less sort of trickery on the weak side. It is a little bit more of a one-on-one. I mean, isolation sometimes is like sort of a negative term, but I think this was also true before like it became, I think that the isolation kind of got bastardized, but Mm -hmm. it was a little bit of a simpler, like kind of game, I think to follow. Yes. Like, uh, I think uh, Lakers official uh, Twitter account tweeted an excellent like one minute clip. Yes, LeBron attacking the strong side zone. Yes, that was really good. Like I learned so much new things about like following these guys, uh, Laker film room. So yeah. it's more complex. Like you don't see that thing in like nineties basketball because either you could hard double, or you could you would get called for illegal. Uh, yeah, illegal right. Defense. Yeah, it's yeah. more complex. The way the de- offensive players are attacking the defenses right now and how the defense are countering, it's so complicated. And well, I I agree there are some bad elements to the game right now. For example, the replay review stuff and the foul baiting. I think we can do certain things to counter that. And I have talked about it on Locker Room before. Mm-hmm. So my suggestions for that is to have a fourth referee, like a war referee in uh, uh, soccer. So if we have someone okay. like that, and we make all the decisions, repetitions by that guy, not the lead referee. So if we have that, a fourth referee with war responsibilities, video, video replay rep- responsibility, I think you can eliminate most of the time lag, which we see long. I think yesterday's Knicks, uh, yeah. Knicks game, the oh, last God. 30 seconds took 15 minutes. <laughs> I think yeah, you can that was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, you can eliminate these things by having a war referee who is who is at, at the game or who is designated to that game, like not the central review system. So that referee should be designated to that game. He's responsible for that game, and he's possibly the part of the uh, uh, referee crew. It's it's like he's a fourth referee of the crew, so that they have like chemistry building among themselves. Like mm-hmm. that's a point right now. So. And for the foul baiting, I think I don't have a proper uh, change, but maybe guys like you are better at this. So the foul baiting point, um, I have a lot of thoughts on this, and I've I've talked about this on other platforms. First, though, did you see the um, official refs account? I forget when it was on Twitter, maybe a couple yeah. days ago. They had tweeted basically I like they had like, for those who haven't seen it, they did a. I forget if there was it a Luka Doncic shot that they were focusing on. Um, I but think Wiggins was the defender. I forgot. Wiggins, yeah, it was. It was. I think Wiggins was a, Andrew Wiggins of Golden State was the defender, and I believe Luka Doncic was the shooter. Uh, and they were showing an example. They basically walked through one of these sort of foul baiting moments and explained sort of what the rules were and how they were called, and why it was sort of called that way. It was a play where Luca very much jumped, not straight up, 
not vertically, not naturally into his shot. And Wiggins was called for mm-hmm. the foul, despite uh, you know his jump was a less less. Yeah, he, he jumped on naturally, but it was less obviously unnaturally. And one of the, I, I sometimes I think the rest sort of like kind of dig themselves bigger holes by doing this. The way they sort of put it was like the rule is that they almost like kind of illustrated the problem that a lot of people have without inadvertently because they said their logic was essentially the defensive player has to jump straight up, but the offensive player doesn't have to jump straight up. Therefore it's a foul. That's what the rules say. That's how we interpreted it. And a lot of people are saying, I think response to that would be, that's what we don't like about the rule. <laughs> like that's the whole problem. <laughs> yeah. So, Hey, Actually, thanks for proving thing. it. <laughs> one more thing about this, which I found frustrating in several aspects of NBA's implementation of rules, rules is the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. So, for example, if you look at like clear path fouls, the way they are ref today is bad, and it won't uh, address the uh, actual plague. What is happening of Eurofalls? Like, I actually did a statistical analysis of Eurofalls and saw that the same teams are committing the most Eurofalls every year, and the number is increasing. Like the Jazz. Uh huh. The Eurofoul, to be clear, for those who may not know, are when there's a turnover or a long rebound, and it looks like it's going to be a fast break, and it's like there's maybe one or two guys back. Someone will just sort of take a foul to stop play, allow the defense to set up, and as long as you do it when there's at least one other person back, it's not a clear path foul. That's a Eurofoul, just to be clear for everybody. Uh, and you're saying that those are on the rise. Yeah. I can link to Matt. I can send you a link to the article. And it's like the same teams are committing the fouls each and every year. I think that's because it's a coaching decision. And NBA has done nothing to fix it. And people have been talking about this since the last five years. When I did research, a little bit of research, when I was writing the article. Yeah. Well, this is strikes as, I think, as a more interesting uh philosophical question which you said you framed it as a letter versus spirit of the law which is one way to look at it uh the other way to look at it is i think if you listen to and talk to people who are involved in the officiating space there was a really good interview that um our friend ben taylor did on his podcast with uh the direct evan walsh who's the director of what's his official title basically like he's in charge of like kind of entertainment of the game Vision. It's how I understood it. Um, and he was saying that, like, one of the things that they're doing with a lot of officiating is they're trying their very hardest to eliminate subjectivity, to make it so that everything is ironclad, written down, sort of very clear. And I wonder, I think that part of the problem you run into is that it's very hard every time you start to specify every little situation. Basketball is a very dynamic game. There are always going to be subversions of the rules, and you end up with a problem like, I don't know if you follow American football, but I think people who do understand this with, like, the catch rule, where the actual rule is so elaborate and specific that it's impossible to ascertain. So you end up in situations where you have to define the Euro foul in very specific terms, just as an example. And so the definition that they've settled on is that there has to be one defender back, which kind of creates a double whammy problem because now we're reviewing to see if there's one defender back, which takes, which is sort of antithetical to what they want to do. But then you have like these subversions. It's like, 
you've lost what's happened is you've lost sight of why you put the rule in, which is to prevent sort of these fast breaks. And you just transfer that over to a different sort of setting. And that's the one challenge. I mean, the, the problem of course is the alternative is if you do allow for rooms of subjectivity, people will complain that there's subjectivity. So I, I just sometimes wonder if like, it's very easy to say, we need a common sense law with some of this stuff. And we probably do. Uh, I just wonder if like, maybe at the end of the day, you're better off just accepting some form of subjectivity. Maybe we, it, speaking of overcorrecting, if people say we're overcorrecting the modern game, the NBA is perhaps is a fool's errand to try to be very specific about every little thing that could happen in a game and have very ironclad rules about how you're supposed to do it. Because one, the officials are going to have way more stuff to interpret. And two, there will always be somebody who comes along to subvert that rule. So, okay, if you change the Eurofile definition, then they're going to find another way to sort of get the spirit of it. So I just think it's really impossible to legislate at a certain point. And then you really start to have to think about the spirit of the law and allowing a little room for subjectivity. I think the best way to say that is, is that how would you ref if this game was a pickup game? Like, I think that's a good way to look at it. If you do some of the stuff referees are doing in a pickup game, they wouldn't be refereeing in that game anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, pickup games are notoriously challenging to referee as well. <laughs> um, there is sort of an honor system. So, but I, yeah, I, you know, to me, the clear path in the review stuff is is what it is. I, I think. What you said about the fourth official, I believe they are starting to do some of that stuff. Uh, maybe not necessarily the fourth official in the arena, but they are sort of starting to centralize some of these reviews. Like, for example, they no longer review if a shot was a three or not. They just sort of do that separately and change the score. So I think they're moving in that direction. The more interesting question and the question that I think a lot of people who complain about some of the foul drawing and some of this stuff talk about is the inherent contradiction that was in that referee's tweet, which was, so offensive players can jump wherever they want, but defenders have to jump up. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people have a problem with that idea, where by the letter of the law, it's okay for you to pump fake as an offensive player, and then if the defender is jumping out in any way, you can literally jump like five feet to the side and draw a foul. And that's something that people don't really like. It doesn't look natural. It doesn't look like a basketball play. It subverts the spirit of the law. Yeah, that's bad. Like, more and more players are doing that. Like, earlier, like, only superstars were doing that. And the game which I gave up is when Seth Curry did that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm looking at a... Our buddy Ben Dowsett says this is something who's very good with knowing officials and what they're doing says in the chat that this is something I'm looking at. It looks like we've got another speaker request. Hello. Hello. Mm -hmm. We can hear you. What's up? Uh, nothing much. I, I was just uh, – I heard you guys talking about the contact on jump shooters, and I wanted to jump in and think yes. about think about the like differential in – the amount of contact that's allowed when someone is driving to the rim versus when someone is taking a jump shot. Obviously there are different actions, but the, the like play that sticks out in my mind is 
the foul that Giannis was called for against Jimmy Butler in last year's Eastern Conference semifinals. That was that crazy, like, Chris Middleton and Jimmy Butler game where Butler ended up hitting those free throws. But they called the foul because Giannis basically placed his hand on uh, Butler's, like, hip as he was shooting. Um, I, I don't know exactly what the solution is to this, but it, it just kind of strikes me the amount of contact that's allowed at the rim. Obviously, verticality is a huge part of that, but even beyond that, mm-hmm. um, versus the much more stringent sort of regulations of defenders uh, in how they're allowed to defend uh, jump shooters. And this is something that, that you have trouble with, um, just to be clear. that this is You would agree that we have gone too far in the other direction on this subject? I assume yo you just got disconnected. Uh, hi, I was just yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just you. You agree that this is something that we've gone too far in the other direction with. We are protecting shooters too much. Yeah, I, I think the like officiation of jump shooters and contact on jump shooters is more of a micro issue. I think generally I'm pretty satisfied with the mm-hmm. the style and shot distribution of of the game. Um, this was just more of a micro issue and, you know, maybe if we like fix, uh, again, I, I really lack a solution to this problem. Um, but if you sort of try to maybe tweak the, um, contact rules at the rim versus on jump shooters, maybe you just naturally sort of get, um, what a lot of these critics seem to Mm -hmm. want. Um, Yeah. And, and generate more attacking the basket instead of jump shooting. And yeah. one sorry, one thing I just want to finish with is uh I don't know if anyone else saw, but Seth Part now tweeted um the percentage of shots that were mid range jumpers and threes in nineteen ninety seven, nineteen ninety eight versus so far this season. And there was actually one percent fewer of total shots in the NBA um, were coming from uh, were coming from jumpers basically mm-hmm. uh, in today's NBA. Yeah. I do want to talk a little bit about that uh, at a, later on because yeah, I mean that, that I think speaks to one reason why I think some of the three point stuff is overblown. Uh, but to the point about uh, the jump shooting, I'm going to ask another follow-up question, which is, do you think, do you think there's too much contact allowed at the, like, where is it? Where is it most problematic? Is it too little contact is allowed on the three-point line or too much contact is allowed at the rim? And where do, where would you start? Would you make it easier to draw foul driving or harder to draw foul shooting? Uh, I don't know if he's still there. Anyway, um, that's sort of one thing that uh, I've been kind of wondering about. Can people hear me, by the way? Okay. Um, so as far as the shooting thing, I, I want to throw out this, this thought. Uh, it's something that uh, I think is worth thinking, worth considering, worth kind of thinking through uh, with this is for one, number one, I think it was sort of touched on in the comment that was just made, but it's also something worth considering uh, as well. They are different motions. When you're shooting a jump shot, you are much more vulnerable 
and you're in much more space and you're really, there's much more of a risk that like a little tap on the hip is going to dramatically alter what you're doing. Uh, And there's also much more space for a defender to theoretically go where he's contesting the shot and not touching you on the hip. So I do agree that it is, it looks like less contact, but this reminds me also of how when soccer players kind of fall down after running really hard and it looks like they're sort of flopping and, you know, everyone complains that they're just really soft. A lot of times that's true. And a lot of times it's just that like when you're running really fast at the slightest amount of contact that throws you off, like makes it look, it it carries a larger impact. So I do think that on some level, the NBA is right to say, you know what, we should not be officiating these two places the same way, you know, also, I would say that if the rule is that the defender needs to go straight up, it's obviously a lot easier to go straight up if you're going straight up around the basket. There's less room to be able to go. You're not traveling from as far a distance. Uh, you're already sort of using the basket itself as your gauge of going up. So it only makes sense that if that's the way the rule is sort of done, then that's the way it's interpreted. The other thing that's worth noting as well is that one of the, I mean, this goes back to something that Noah was mentioning in the chat, the landing space rule, which is calls for flagrant foul if you land on the ankle. That's as much about eliminating injuries. Uh, I think that's what something that Evan said on Ben Taylor's podcast. That's as much about eliminating injuries uh, as almost as is anything else. Um, And I think injuries have gone down. Uh, so that's something that uh, is worth kind of considering. Um, all right. Ben, what's up? Hey, Mike. Sorry, I'm a little late. Thanks for, uh, thanks for I'm sure, leading a thrilling conversation to this point. Yeah, uh, I have computer issues, so I'm figuring <laughs> I'm fixing this up. Uh, okay. Uh, speaker requests. I'm going to let Ben Dowsett speak because he's the expert on this stuff. Ben. Dowsett, what's up? That's too nice. Don't call me an expert. <laughs> can you hear me? I can hear you now. That okay. this is gonna be quite the cleanup of Varun afterwards. Yeah. Sorry about uh, sorry about if my sound quality is crap. Uh, I just have a few minutes outside of work here for a second. I just uh, wanted to chime in briefly on the ref side of things. Which, by the way, I agree with pretty much everything you've said in this room so far while I've been in here listening. Uh, I said it in the discussion, and my general thought on this when people have complaints about certain systemic things involving the rest. I think the jump shooting thing that you were just talking about, the jumping into shooters is like maybe the biggest one in the league right now. Almost all of those with very few exceptions are issues with things at the competition committee level, not with the actual officials. The refs are calling things as they're being instructed to call them. Those stupid uh, pump fake rules and things like that. Those are, they're calling the rule the way it's written. We, I agree with you guys that it's written poorly and, it's dumb. That's, that's not something the refs themselves can do anything about. And I think that's, a, I know you know this, Mike, but I think that's a common misconception. A lot of the time among folks is like, oh, the refs, they just need to make the decision to call this differently or whatever. That's not how it works. It has to go through competition committee uh, level at the league. And there are actually several things I think that are problems in the league right now that need to go through that point. But the there's confusion when people think, oh, they just need to start calling that differently. In reality, the league is the one that actually needs to take action. Yeah, it's an important clarification. Thank you for that. Um, I think a lot of times 
the complaints, just we see the refs that are making the calls. And so what we're, people are complaining are really saying that the rules are the problem. Ben Epstein, uh, <laughs> you follow soccer. This reminds me a lot of the VAR discussion yeah. uh, where it's like, Ultimately, anyone who complains about video, the VAR, uh, I don't know how many people on here are soccer fans. What they're really saying is, like, this rule is not written right. Not that the refs are interpreting it incorrectly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's right. And, and it's also, you know, I think if anyone here has listened to the Whistleblower podcast on Donaghy or Donaghy, you know, the way he describes the subjectivity of rules is, is the one thing that, that gives me a little pause here, that that any given time of the game, a rule can be have a little more elasticity to the way that it's called and that the refs have that decision-making ability, despite the objectivity, if you will, or whatever, the, the, the cut and dry nature of, of how a rule is written. I do think that Ben Dowsett here is right. I mean, this is something that clearly goes into the competitive nature of the game. and needs to be evaluated actually where the rule is written, how it's penned, uh, and then ultimately how it, it's integrated back into the game. I, this is not going to be a switch. This is a, a very a very valid and, and, and valuable offensive move at this point that needs to be worked out of people's skill sets and the way that they try to draw fouls. And that's not something that just happens on a, in the middle of a season um, when it becomes a hot topic. You know, VAR, Mike, to your point, that is that is essentially a sport that's been – you know, a, a soccer field is enormous. There are two people on each side that are doing your lines and then one ref who's running 45 miles a game in the middle. The idea that that person went from having a, an idea of how to rule the game through the rules that are, are, are current to then having a video referee that is going to give the precise amount of tip of the toe that is past the other person for an offsides call, you know, th- that is a very night and day thing. That is yeah. a much more drastic measure for rules, in, in my opinion. Well, but- yeah, go ahead, Ben. Go oh, ahead, sorry, Ben was, D. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to hit on something you said there at the start, Ben, which is a very good point. And by the way, the Whistleblower Podcast is yeah, fantastic. Even as someone who supports refs the way I do, I think it's a great podcast. Yep. Um, with regard to Donahue, who, by the way, just the name Donahue does so much damage to like the current ref. Like the, I talked to lots of people yeah. in the officiating. Yeah. Currently writing a big story. And I, I understand, like, Donahue happened. They can't get around that. It, yeah. it happened. But they, they take, first of all, they've taken so many steps to try and prevent that. But more importantly, to go down the line of what you just said, since Donahue made those comments, and if, more specifically, since Donahue was actually an active ref in the NBA, the program has been overhauled completely by Monty McCutcheon as the, as the guy who's in charge now. And a big part of that overhaul has been directly aimed at what you said, as far as viewing each call made in a game by a referee as its own independent event. The thing that took place before that call, the time of game that it is for that call, the players involved in that call or non-call, none of those things should matter. Now, is that perfectly how it always happens? Of course not. Of course not. There are some very specific, like you can look at defensive three seconds that never gets called in the fourth quarter and never gets called in crunch time as a very specific (laughs) example of like, they're clearly not viewing it as each independent event. But at least in my research, I do think they've improved that area a lot. It's not perfect, but especially compared to two decades ago where that really was like, they were trained that way. They were trained as quote unquote game managers. You you keep the game kind of even kind of like hockey refs are today, which I could go all day on how bad hockey (laughs) refs are. It's a joke. 
uh, because they're trained that way. They're trained to manage the game, to keep, oh, you know, the last team got the last three penalties. Oh, well, maybe we give the other team the next mm. one to, to even things out. The NBA is training very specifically against that. Now, does yeah. that always result in the perfect result? No. People are humans. We have biases, etc. But they're trying to move in that direction. So before you go, Ben, I want to ask you one question in response to that. Do you think – that given that that's where things have gone, that that we have perhaps overcorrected and there actually is not enough room for subjectivity in terms of situations do change uh, and there are differences. This sort of is, again, the VAR problem where like technically a part of your body is offsides, but it doesn't it's not in the spirit of the game. And the other thing that I think may happen if you over legislate some of this stuff, which is the refs just simply have too many rules to remember. You know, that's yeah. why Mike D'Antoni would always say when he was with seven seconds or less, like you would cram much less stuff into his scouting reports because you need players' minds free to play. At a certain point, the same logic should apply to refs. Uh, do you think that we have overcorrected perhaps? In certain areas, absolutely, and I think that's a really good point, but this is such a nuanced discussion because some of the areas, the answer to your question there is a resounding yes, and some it's a resounding no. In certain cases, the whole theme of not leaving objectivity in something, like was the, you know, for instance, one area I think, going back to the whole shoot, pump faking and jumping into guys, I feel like that's an area where referees should be allowed the subjectivity. Is that this player's, is that anything close to an NBA player's natural shooting motion? Or if he's jumping six feet to his right, no, probably not. Mm-hmm. Right? Like that's, they should have that level of subjectivity, I think. But there are other areas, even just distinct nuanced areas, and I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head. I don't I don't know if I have one, maybe someone can think of one, where that becomes a slippery slope fast, where allowing the subjectivity suddenly gets into, like, uh, some people have said that with the whole intentional foul thing, though I do think the intentional foul rule would probably be good the way they do it. We were talking about the uh, Euro foul earlier in the show. Um, Yeah. And that is sort of, again, the problem where it's now instead of just fouling, (laughs) you know, with with uh, no guys back, people just foul with one guy back. <laughs> now that's okay. Right. Uh, and what's but, the difference between an intentional foul if there's one guy back and it's like, oh, but I was going for the ball. Like I, I was going for the ball in a very aggressive way that made it likely that I was probably going to foul this player. But that wasn't intentional. Like, you know, those kinds of things. And there are others I could probably – I wish I had come in more prepared. I would have had a better example. There are certain areas where that's a really slippery slope. But then there are others where I'm totally with you. A, I think the fourth official, that that is the replay side official, whatever, should have more responsibility. Um, I, I think they should all, first of all, all reviews this, the whole theme of referees reviewing their own challenges. That's ridiculous. That should not happen. That's, that's a very simple thing of human bias. Like we all know how human bias works. I make a call that I think is right. Four seconds later, someone is telling me, I think you're wrong and I'd like you to review your own decision and tell me now whether you agree with me or not. Like, that's dumb. The offsite official should be the one reviewing all challenges, first of all. And they should have more responsibility. For instance, I know I can't say too much because I'm going to write an article about it soon, but there's some tech that could make goaltending where refs don't have to call goaltending anymore. That I think they should do that. A, goaltending, refs tell me all the time it's one of the hardest calls that they have to make because it's on a vertical plane rather than on a horizontal one. They're standing. Right. The ball's really high above them. Most of them are not as tall <laughs> as NBA players. Like, you could take that away. I think there are a couple areas where you could li- even, like kind of you said, 
recorrect in the other direction and maybe bring their responsibilities to a more manageable place. Yeah, I think these are, but doing that in a wide swath is so difficult because there are so many nuanced situations. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Ben, Dowsett, thank you. This was terrific. I do want to move on from refs to talk more about the gameplay itself, but this is great. Uh, Thank you so much. Um, One call I would add to this, and this is, I don't want to go too far into this, but I do think we're starting to reach the point where there's a little bit too much offensive contact on drives where the off arm offensive players get away with a lot more than they used to because they sort of maximized their ability to ward off defenders and, you know, but that's a separate topic. Um, I hope everyone's st- still here. Uh, ben Epstein. Hello. Hey, ben. hey Mike. What is, I'm going to ask you this from like a gameplay standpoint so we can kind of kick this conversation off. Like, how much? How do you like today's modern style of play compared to previous styles? Like, do you think this is more or less entertaining? In what ways is it more or less entertaining? Uh, and is this? Are we? Can things? Should things get better? Or is this exact? Is this literally the best that we could do? Hmm. Well, I don't think it's the best we can do. I'm never going to say that the current iteration of any type of sport because just i think we we look at things in five-year windows and then we think of things in 10-year windows and we think of things in in generational windows there's always room for improvement um just the idea right now that we've moved so uh, effortlessly into uh, a more positionless way more skilled way more pace although i would argue the pace now is a little bit um that's that's something you could you could have a conversation about based upon how some of the slowest, biggest people in the league are having some of the best seasons possible. Um, but as a team, you know, in terms of what team basketball is, this idea now that your most skilled creator doesn't have to be your point guard, that you don't have to fit people into boxes by one, two, three, four, or five, that you can go with what you feel like is the most skilled unit and then make your basketball team from that. I think there was a an arc, a blueprint for how basketball teams were created for a long time. And then from that came the style of play. Now I think it's the opposite. It's with talent, you figure out what your team is going to be. The players themselves, they're the variables that are going to dictate, uh, you know, stylistically the way the league is moving. And with so many players moving in uh, stylistically, now having skill sets of being able to, you know, shoot from distance create off the dribble, uh, be, you know, over seven feet tall and still be able to, in theory, run the point from the top of the key. I feel like every big in the league now has some sort of like Chris Webber, Sacramento Kings passing ability. The good bigs this is, by the way. This is I, mean, I, mean, I, think, yeah. I think every big, honestly. Yeah, I mean, and that's the goal, right, is to have that skill set locked in no matter what, uh, you know, what physical profile you feel, fulfill. But now I'll tell you, like, when we went back at the beginning of, I guess it's like a year ago now, the beginning of quarantine and you were doing your whole series on the greatest teams ever to not win a title and yeah back for SB nation. And, and we watched a lot. I mean, more I than st- anyone should have to. I still do. I still yeah. do, by the way, like, I think it's good. I, I think a lot of the people who complain about the modern game don't, I have not watched an old game in a while, which I mean, yeah. who should? but they're all out there on YouTube. Like I still watch them a lot because it, it helps me with my book and certain things, but yeah, yeah no, I, I one of the things that that strikes me watching an old i mean first of all i think you're right like the game in general gets better as it moves forward that's just how history should work mm-hmm. um and no noah says you know she thinks we're at a peak um 
Mm-hmm. Do you think it's too easy for offenses? Oh, it's it's we're certain. <laughs> is it too easy? I don't think is the way I would phrase it. I would I would tell you that there are too many uh, efficiencies to the game now that that benefit offenses. Does that make it so that it's too easy? I don't I don't think so. I still have watched some serious struggles this year uh, around the league. But if you're talking about your top teams, you call it you know five to ten best offenses in the league. They make it look pretty easy. You know, uh, getting to 120 points, mind you. You go back, you watch the 90s, early 90s, late 80s. You know, if you got into the high 70s, you could you could win a game. You could win a, a, a large yeah. chunk of your games. And, and, and that's scoring 40 points less. Yeah, it's the, the 2000s, early yes. in the 2000s was just – I'm doing this oh. chapter now uh, on what happened before when we – zone was allowed – but the hand-checking rules were not relaxed. Although, as I'm going to talk right about in the book, rules is probably the wrong way to look at that. Anyway, some of the lowest-scoring games in NBA history happened in that period between, like, 2001 and 2004. Sure. Uh, and that's sort of because the defense was more advanced, but the offense wasn't. Um, yep. Yep. Now, obviously, offensive records are skyrocketing in terms of points per possession uh, every yes. season. Threes are skyrocketing. It occurs to me that, Instead of saying our defense is, is it too easy to score, it almost feels like there's sort of this inverse thing, just to your point, which is it should have been like deep offenses have basically been giving defenses all these handicaps for too long. Like this is where, mm-hmm. like imagine history working reverse and this is the game became more defensive and we started from the point where we are now, which is, the league's figured out that three is greater than two. There are these rules that allow for freedom of movement. Um, we're in this place. Like, in some ways, I sort of think, like, what took the offenses so long? Like, this, some of the stuff that's happening now is stuff that, like, is not that challenging. And so I almost wonder if defenses were almost operating and being given, like, this handicap for way too long. And now this is really the natural state of how basketball should be in terms of you do have to cover all this court space in terms of three the three-point line in itself is a, a, obviously an artificial thing but you know this is more it, it should be i said a tweet it was like it should be hard to play this hard to play defense i'm surprised that there isn't more of that happening is it just a matter of the anchoring effect of the past hmm. is it just an anchoring effect of the past is that like the, the end of the question uh yeah yes, i think a lot of it is I, I i do and i think i think a lot of it is every as fans, we use stats to um, to tie together eras, whether that's responsible or not. It does then kind of codify the way we think about things from like a top level standpoint of like offense and defense, what it meant to be. And I think a good way to look at this is like the the composition of a good basketball team in the 80s and 90s. You wanted to have one seven footer. And then two other guys over six nine, you know, or around that that type of, uh, or if you weren't six nine, you had to be physically square, um, and that was a, a great way to have to cover far less of the court because, well, at that point, six of the ten guys on the court are going to be inhabiting the same five by ten space. Um, I think maybe you sent a screen capture of a screenshot of a game from, but I think it was in the eighties. I, I believe it was an eighties shot, but it, all ten guys. Uh, we're below the free throw line. Seven, uh, late 70s, yeah. Late 70s, okay, so late 70s. Um, we're below the free throw line. And 
this idea that the physical builds lend themselves to the space on the court and just aptitude. Uh, imagine, um, I think Anthony Davis is sort of like the prototype I think about the most. This idea that his, when you're a point guard and you're getting guard skills for the bulk of your developmental life, and then you become a six foot 11, seven foot six wingspan or whatever human being, and just how much of a freak of, you know, of training that is, because it, that's not the way basketball was trained for the longest period of time. Well, I mean, you, right, think yeah. back, right? you were a guard, you did the guard skills. You were the big, you did big skills. Like this idea that you're getting a crop of people able to expand the game. And then the idea that some stats are just ludicrous to see and not just like field goal percentages from the best players from the early two thousands where, you know, your Iversons of the world who I love to death, as you know, um, you know, AI would, would routinely put up lines that people today would give Donovan Mitchell, hell for you know and, and and that's again a much different game but the, the the sport of basketball i feel has evolved more than any other sport on a five to ten year basis uh that it's it's almost incomparable uh to to look back at the beginning of certain people's careers who are still in the league i think about a guy like tim duncan who's yeah. an undeniably great player and he, the way that he dominated would look and feel a little awkward well, yeah, I, I think I I totally agree with you. Their premise that like things have changed more in the last five to ten years than any sport in any era. That's kind of the premise of the book. So I, I totally agree. And it, I also I also agree. And I, this is something I've been kind of thinking about for our newsletter. Uh, you know, watching Lamelo Ball and Anthony Edwards um, in particular. Like I do think that there's like there are players coming to the league now who are almost like modern game native in a way that they can adjust quicker and they're doing different things. Uh, they're better at sort of different adaptive movements that guys who are veterans, like they're, they're, it's almost like you're seeing a version of digital replacing newspapers uh, in the NBA. Uh, so I, I think there's something interesting going there. A couple quick things. Um, Noah mentioned, and I think to your point, uh, Ben, this is interesting. I actually didn't know this. Uh, according to clean the glass, Eight teams are four points better than league average on offense, which means that the eight best there are eight offenses who are powering this offensive mm-hmm. explosion. Only two teams are four points better than league average on defense. Mm-hmm. So this is, by the way, that the, the, this does follow the best are kind of pushing the game around. I want to talk about something that Josh Levy says in the chat, and I want to read his comment uh, verbatim unless he wants to come on and actually speak it. Um, but The lack of tactical diversity is his issue. He says he would love a league where teams can beat you from the outside and from the post. I don't think that has to be a binary choice. Uh, What do you think about that? Do you think there's a lack of tactical diversity in the NBA today? Hmm. Um, Yeah, in a sense, I do. Um, I I think there are a few teams that never have to necessarily battle the urge to be unique because the skill sets of their best players and then having multiple guys. And I think the Nets are a good example. Like the Nets are going to probably make a long run into the Eastern Conference playoffs, let alone maybe even win the championship and and could very well do so off of much more traditional isolation offensive basketball from having the three best ISO scorers in the NBA. Right. And and you could argue Mm -hmm. the greatest in NBA history. So, is that tactical diversity going to the, to the wayside? Like in a sense, yes, because if it's not broken, don't fix it. And that's one that's tried and true. Put a couple of court spacers as the other two people on, you know, a, a court spacer and a big to rebound and like they go. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
But the, the teams who are innovating, I think, are doing so through incredibly unique lenses. I don't think there's a world where Denver is some innovative offense if they don't have a Jokic. Yeah. That being said, I, do, I, I think it's an interesting take for sure. Um, I think tactical diversity also stems from the regurgitation of a lot of head coaches as well. I think you know, the more unique perspectives that come into the league, the more fresh eyes, the more uh, you know, pl- folks like Nick Nurse who had to take a long – very, uh, um, you know, a checkered path to the league through lots of different innovation and lots of different skill sets and team compositions, et cetera, to get to an NBA roster who then was able to fulfill a number of different unique right. perspectives. Like that matters. Um, like, are yeah. we going to see unique net new basketball from the Hawks now? No, we're going to see a Nate McMillan version of a basketball team yes. with the Hawks player personnel. Yeah, I mean, you. The idea of recycled coaches has been was true thirty years ago too. Uh yes, through twenty years ago. It's really gonna be true forever. That's just sort of how life is. Uh so I don't know if that's necessarily what's going on. When I wanna focus on the two words that um I don't think I interpret very differently than I think Josh seems to mm. interpret in others, and that is tactical diversity. I think there's an incredible amount of tactical diversity today. In large part because the court is bigger. There are more interesting places that you can be valued from um, and do stuff from. Tactically, in terms of like sort of how do you get to the outcomes, I think there's been this is the most diverse era I've ever seen. You know, again, you watch games later uh, back in the day because of zone defense rules and because of freedom of movement, it was really hard to have tactical diversity. Strategic diversity, I think that's a little different. Um, the idea outside versus opposed, three versus two, that is more what I think Josh means is strategic diversity, where people are sort of chasing the same types of shots. I think there is something to that, although, you know, as has been mentioned um, on this on this podcast, I think Seth Partnow mentioned it. If you look at the actual number of jumpers taken compared to let shots in the paint, there's not much of a difference now. It's just that many more of those jumpers are threes. So in terms of style, you're still seeking out like sort of the best shots and you're trying to use jumpers to space the floor. It's just that those jumpers are being spaced from further. Yep. So I, I think it's maybe you could argue that there's a lack of strategic diversity. I don't necessarily agree, but I can understand that point. Sure. I don't think you can argue there's like a tactical diversity because tactics are sort of, if you consider tactics, like how do you get your shots? Yep. Yep. There's a lot of ways you get your shots. Now, one thing I will say, um, and I want to get to Kirk's question um, because it's an interesting one too, but I want to say this to the point of everybody's sort of the skill level being more democratized across the league. I do wonder. I could ar- I could see someone saying, when when they say tactical diversity or s- strategic diversity, one of the things I wonder about is, are we talking about player type diversity here? Like hmm. at the end of the day, it seems like if everybody, if like one of the things I'm I'm just starting this chapter um, in the book, but just if every if the rise of what we have been calling positionalist basketball, this idea that your center can do a lot of the same things as your point guard and that positions are less rigid. And, you know, to your point, like what you said about Anthony Davis, a guard does guard things a forward does forward things. I really like it. I think you really like it. I think it adds more complexity to the game. 
I also think it adds more complexity to the game. And I do, I could see the argument that from a, we're trying to process this and we're trying to find different experiences. All the players are starting to look about the same. Hmm. I don't know. And I don't think that was certainly not true in the nineties. Like there are many different player body types, not necessarily player skill types. Cause I think now there are many more strands of skills that are more interesting, but Body types, sort of, if you really were thinking about, like, kind of the rigidity of roles, it was a lot easier, I think, to understand back in the day. And and I I think that's a good thing, but I can understand how someone would think that's not a good thing. So, okay, let me, you think that it helps, I don't even know what the right term is, but, like, it helps a more casual fan to, to understand the roles and responsibilities in a one, maybe, two, three, four, and maybe. five. I'm sorry. Josh wants to speak, and I want to give yeah. him a chance to defend his points. So sorry. I miss this, Josh. Uh, Josh, hello. What's up? Hey, guys. How's it going? Um, no, and, you know, Mike, I think you're, you're absolutely right on that distinction between strategic and, and tactical diversity. I think looking at it again, I would. I, I, my point is strategic diversity. And I think I want to clarify. So uh, obviously there is a lot going on for every NBA offense, every system has its, its nuances, its differences. And, you know, that's, you know, I think what you and and a lot of other people do so well is like illuminating those. The problem is those, those are high level differences, right? So when I look at football, American football, I think one of the appeals of the game is there are, at least in theory, multiple ways to score points right you have you know that's becoming less the case i think now but you know you could have a more balanced offense you could have a a more spread type offense there's a lot of different avenues you can get to get to the the point scoring you know goal basketball at least in the nba i think everyone because of the you know inherent inefficiencies of taking mid-range shots or you know the, the the power of the three has naturally and rightly tilted everybody towards at least a similar game model. Everybody wants to build to get threes because that's the only way to sustainably have success. What I want to see is a a league where both avenues are possible. And and I'll tell you what's kind of prompted this thought for me. So I'm a, I'm a huge Iowa Hawkeyes fan and I've gotten to see Luca Garza play the last, you know, couple of years in college and, or four years in college. And, He's just such a dominant low post player. And he, he's got a, a good enough three. I think his, you know, it's pretty, pretty good consensus that in the NBA, his defense, his foot speed, that's probably what's going to cost him. But his game is so fun to watch because it's so different in a lot of ways. He's got the whole range of low post moves. It's, it's not a brute power low post game. It's so uh, nuanced. And that's just been really fun getting an opportunity to watch that because it's so different. So I think your point, the point that you made second is is probably right too in that maybe we don't have enough skill set diversity among players because it is just sometimes it's nice to, to not have everybody be of one mold it's nice to see because let's face it it makes the offseason more fun when you when there's multiple ways to build out a team you know and for fans at home to play gm it's more fun to say hey there there are different avenues to get here and you know, and, and and so not everyone's competing for the same exact players because they need to fill the exact same roles. I just like that idea where there is some level of strategic difference and we can kind of have those barroom discussions of like who's, you know, who's, whose system is, is ultimately going to come out on top. Okay. Uh, I That's a good clarification. Thank you. Uh, I want to, 
I want to sort of offer a couple counterpoints or questions, sure. follow-ups to that. What is what Noah just mentioned in the chat, which is weren't the Lakers, given their emphasis on size, uh, in and of itself a stylistically diverse team, and they just won the title. So how do you explain that? What's your answer to that to that sort of counterpoint? I would say, well, first of all, I think, I think anytime LeBron's involved, I think that throws system to some extent out the window because, and, and when you have so much talent, such a concentration of talent, I think that makes the question of the system somewhat secondary. You've got guys who can do so many different roles. You don't need to be as concerned about maximizing, you know, one or two different things that they do well. well so while I, I think that, I think that I think you've kind of hit on the thing that's like actually beneath the surface of all of this, which is which I think is sorry to cut you off. No, please. If players can do more things collectively and teams have less practice time, which I don't know if you read that Los Angeles Times story about Dan Wiki, Wiki, I forget how you pronounce his name, about how like teams are just not practicing this year, then how can you possibly have a system with roles? I mean, like what we're really describing is maybe not necessarily the lack of stylistic diversity, but the, I think you've already used the word system a lot, which I think is interesting. I, I think it's really hard. You don't have systems anymore, period. You can't systems are more dynamic system is like sort of you use the football example system is like you line up a certain way, you execute a play. You, there's a lot less of that in the NBA now. And maybe that's, what the challenge is. I don't know what you think of that. I, I just thought that was very interesting the way you put it. Yeah. You know, I, I guess I think of things in terms of a kind of, I'm a huge soccer fan as well. So I've internalized a lot of those, that language about tactics and soccer and, or, and tactics and system. But I mean, I, I think systems an appropriate thing in basketball. I, di- I differentiate system from a very structured playbook. I think a system okay. is a series of, uh, like program pre-programmed responses and counter responses to situations, right? It can be, you can have an automated system. Whereas, I, so I don't necessarily mean that as a synonym for a complete playbook where the coach right, okay. run set A, B, C. So, you know, you, you know, like the motion offense is a system. It's but like, a, it's a bunch of principles is what right. you're saying. Yeah. yeah. You, you, you do that. There's less, I mean, there's, yeah. I mean, there's even less time to install those principles. Um, but yeah, I, I see the distinction. It, if you, I guess, like, kind of, if you're thinking about how do you define champions, you're not really saying the Lakers system or versus the Toronto Raptors system. Um, really, you're sort of talking a lot about star talent, and maybe that's where the challenge is. Um, well, and, and one, sorry, one more point I just wanted to make on, you know, we spend a lot of time, rightly and wrongly, talking about the top two or three teams in the NBA at any given time. You know, we, we focus on that. But I can tell you as a Chicago Bulls fan my whole life, there are a lot of other teams. And sometimes you got to find interest in other places besides chasing a ring. And, and I think that's one way you when you have different looking teams on a different day, that's one way you can kind of continue to, to stay interested, even when you have a team that's not necessarily, you know, top of the table relevant. Gotcha. Well, I appreciate the thank you so much for jumping thank on. Uh, thank you so much for giving your thoughts. Um, ben, what do you think about about that? Do what do you think? Do you agree that there there is sort of among the average teams in the league or the lower average or lower uh, sort of everybody kind of looks the same and you like some more <laughs> diversity? I'm not sure I totally agree, but I want to hear what you think. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is like if if the goal is to win a game, and you think that winning is the 
the most important outcome for your, not just in that game, but for the season itself, because there are plenty of teams in the NBA who that's just not the goal. And you know that pretty early on in the year, if you're in a rebuilding phase or if you're in a competitive phase or or whatever (laughs) it may be, I think there's a lot of room to to wiggle around there. And that's, that's where you see some really bad teams who are looking to try out talent. Like I'm not as I haven't watched Houston play that much recently. <laughs> uh, I don't know who has, but uh, if you're a Houston mm-hmm. fan, I, you know you're gonna yeah. you're gonna get to see a lot of talent uh, tested out. You're gonna go through what my Sixers did in the process and see who can be an NBA player, who's gonna fit the bill when you are eventually trying to win. But I don't know if that lends itself to finding tactics to try to win basketball games with the talent on your team, and more trying to find who can play for your team in a few years from an individual skill set. Right. And that's where the bottom of the league gets a little muddied when it comes to tactical decisions. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and we see this in soccer with the, pro- yeah, yeah. the re- relegation promotion. Like at a certain point, there's a survival element. I I just – I guess I don't really see – like I, I kind of understand the point that like everybody just tries to shoot threes. But I feel like last year's playoffs, to Noah's point, and the early success of guys like Embiid – this year and Jokic um, and even like Ben Simmons and some other players. Um, I think that we were this idea of there was only one way to win and that's to generate sort of certain types of threes. I think that was more an issue a year ago. I think we're actually advancing in the other direction. Now we're starting to see more stylistic diversity. I mean, Philly, the Lakers, you know, Brooke fit like, one of the reasons that I've talked about this with you, like I really want to see Philly and Brooklyn play yeah. like, full strength, is that there is a massive difference in style of play between those two teams. Yep. I feel like that would be really interesting. And maybe I'm like sort of just fixating on a couple specific examples, but I do feel like if you look at the MVP race, just for example, there are a lot of different types of players who are in it. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Yep. Alec wants to speak. Alec, what's up? Uh, yeah, no, I I just want to add that I totally agree with what you're saying, Mike, about um the whole there isn't one. Can you guys hear me? I'm sorry, I'm hearing a lot of feedback. Yeah, we, we can hear you. That's okay, Ben's cool. fault. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I totally agree with you about that there isn't only one way to win. And if you look at, like, I saw a stat earlier, I should probably be Googling this, like three-point rate of past champions, the Lakers were in the 20s. And the Raptors were like in the mid like fifteens, and that it's these aren't just teams chucking up three pointers, winning titles. And the Nets, and you're right, the Nets shoot a lot of threes, and they're looking like one of the best teams in the league right now. But the second best team in the East is the Philadelphia 76ers, who right. the three pointers become a weapon of theirs, but it exemplifies their best weapon, which is Embiid and the inside game. Yeah, yeah, and you look at even Milwaukee uh, on a much more granular level, they're playing much less four out or five out and much more stationing a guy around the basket in what's known as a dunker spot. So mm-hmm. they're almost going back the other way. Um, and I, I wrote about this during the playoffs. I think there was – we were getting to a point where there was just a lot of standing and spacing, and I think the playoffs was a pretty emphatic rejection of that. The the teams that won tend to be the ones that sort of did a lot of cutting. So I, I agree with you. Like I I think when we say and I I want to move into a couple other questions after this, we gotta wrap up. But uh, Alec, thank you for making that point. I really appreciate it. Um I 
I think that what we're really saying above all, and there's an interesting tweet that I got uh, kind of leading up into this uh, conversation. I'm trying to find it, which is like that the players themselves maybe uh, can people hear me by the way, or did I get disconnected again? I- okay. Well, hopefully we can hear. Um, anyway, I, I guess like, so I think that I, one of the things that may be happening is that the players themselves are all starting to look the same in terms of everyone's kind of, it's got, it's important to be lean. You know, everyone sort of has to be able to do a lot of different things. And I think that because of that, there is like sort of more, actually more uniqueness uh, in the tactics, more different players are doing things that were like kind of, again, reserved for certain players. And I think that in and of itself is a little disorienting. So when we talk about like even strategic and tactical, I think it really comes down to like the players themselves all kind of looking more and more similar and doing more and more similar things. Uh, and I think that's hard for people to process in a way that has not been that, you know, like I talked to, I talked about the sort of the rise of like every good team seems to need like a big, tall, great ball handler to lead it. And the one team that's not done that as like Utah and whatever. So I think that's, that's more what I think is actually happening is that the, the players themselves are becoming very similar in body type and that. And even Utah, you know, Joe Ingles isn't a little guy when he's, you know, running point when he does it, when he's in the game and, and Connolly is yeah a, a traditional point guard. Mitchell has his moments. He's a non-traditional point guard in any sense of that. But yeah, you're right in terms of a, a big guy. Yeah, I would, I'd say the Jazz are probably the team that stands out from a success standpoint. You know, as uh, a very yeah. yeah, I think it's more just that they don't have like sort of that one creative, offensive, like kind of tall mm-hmm. guy who runs most of the offense, like the yeah. Clippers do, like the Nets have, and all these teams. They just they sort of do it. More because in some other ways, you know, they're they're the most modern team. They're shooting a lot of threes. Yep. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's more that the players themselves are starting to all look. It's almost hard to differentiate between when we say like sort of styles of play. It's less about like sort of systems or whatever. It's more about well, if everybody is sort of six six and lean or six seven, like there is every free agent signing kind of starts to look the same. I don't know. I think that may be something more that's going on. Um, Mm -hmm. This is a question for you that Chapman asks, uh, and I know you're very much love this topic. So we'll close on, we'll close on this, but I I know Kirk asked an interesting question. I don't think we have enough time to for, which is sort of the most underdeveloped skill right now. And, you know, my, my main answer is I don't think that that skill exists. I think every skill is, almost overdeveloped now and just because it's easier to develop skills with YouTube and being able to process this. So I don't know if there really is an underdeveloped skill necessarily. Um, Lottery reform. How do you feel about it? Do you think it's put the league in a better place? Um, Yeah, I I do actually. Um, I don't think that the, I think in a world prior to the lottery reform, the hoarding of draft picks by, uh, the Rockets and, and Thunder would be have been met with a lot more negative discourse. Um, I think a lot, and, that, and maybe that's obvious, but the idea that those two teams are going to control the NBA draft for the next decade with New Orleans too. Oh, oh New I, Orleans. that's right, that's right. And I, I'm so fascinated to see how that plays out. It's just, especially if the game continues to change, like yeah. stylistically, that's going to be real interesting. But anyway, yeah. you were saying no, you know, it's just so like. I, 
a world where we're, you know, pre-lottery reform where those three teams are going to have, you know, the bulk of the top picks for, for, for a decade or, uh, or their, their pick of how to use their picks, I should say, or their decision on how to use them um, would have been met with more negativity. Now it feels like even teams. And again, if you're a team that's a fringe, uh, this is one of the reasons I love that playing game too, uh, or the ability to play into the eight seed. You, know, you can you can have your cake and eat it too. You can try to make a run for a playoff spot, learn about your players, you know, figure out what it's like to have a winning uh, operation, even if it's premature for the actual success of the roster you have, and then still have the ability to you know maybe win the lottery um, and and add to your team. So yeah, does it de incentivize like the process ever happening again? Sure. Did it make it so that didn't happen? Of course not, because the Rockets are doing an Uber version of what the Sixers did and have way more picks than the Sixers ever had. And it's okay. So in terms of like taking emphasis off of the things like non-competitive basketball that the league wanted to do, success on their part. Um, and in terms of opening it up so teams can both go for it, a playoff bid or, or learning about their young team from a winning standpoint. And then at the same time, still being able to potentially luck into a top five pick top three pick, top pick. Um, yeah, I think it's opened up a lot of avenues that just weren't there before. And that's probably better for number one, the fans. It's probably better for number two, or maybe number one in general for the league to not have to deal with that type of headache and answer those types of questions. And then eventually fire the team's general manager and bring in <laughs> someone they're close with uh, son. Um, but, you know, it's, it's <laughs> now they just, now they just do it through proxies uh, yeah. known as the owners. That's right. That's right. But, you know, like Atlanta. It becomes, it's been successful. And I also think it's like, you know, the, the league, the league is interesting. The NBA is probably, on one hand, the smartest, most progressive, and innovative league, and on the other hand, one that suffers from competitive issues like none other. It has the least parity uh, of any major professional league. Part of that is the spontaneity and randomness of hockey. Baseball is a sport that the, the actual run differential and who your team is. It can be you can build a team in a million different ways to be successful in baseball, and we saw right. that for, for a decade of teams with good bullpens like Kansas City Royals and, uh, right. and Giants yeah. winning World Series. And, football, and, football and especially. Football is the the point of football is to have parity, and so yeah, I think I think this solved a few things for the league um, and took the emphasis off of the negative things that they wanted desperately to get away from. Look, tanking disproportionately affected basketball. Far more. Now, the reason I bring up that progressive nature of all this, that the NBA, I don't mean progressive from a political standpoint. I mean, I think about the entire economic ecosystem the NBA has created with Top Shot, the oh. expansion out into Europe and into, uh, into we, Asia. We are going to have a Top Shot conversation because someone still needs to explain to me how that works. I was trying yeah. to get it. I've got a couple friends who might be interested anyway. Um, yeah. But the point is they're figuring out viable alternative revenue streams that make fans more engaged and more interested in the sport itself, while also on the competitive standpoint, what they do between the lines are figuring out a way to keep every fan base slightly more engaged than they would have been should you you know be in a tanking season. Um, part of this has a lot to do with television rights and having to put up some some ratings, you know, and the NBA does not want to have horrible basketball games being played for two and a half, three months of the season, um, you know. But it's it's I think the lottery reform has been a success. I think that additional reform for how playoffs um, go down, which they're testing out, obviously, for a second straight year this year with the AC playing game. Are oh, also now, positive. Now, now the seven intensity playing game uh, well, I mean, I say for the AC. Yeah, you're right. I mean, seven, ten and then eight, nine playing. Um, I think that's yeah. all great. Like I'm, I'm like, wow. get get creative um, to a point. 
don't hurt the integrity of the competition. Uh, and in this case, I think it creates more, which is good and brings more teams into that nest of playoff viability and then also provides more teams with the, uh, you know, the ability to potentially capitalize on the draft. I feel like it's win-win and they're seeing that. Uh, I yeah, I, I like the playing game. I mean, I think it's too early to say like how the effects are. We're about to find out like with mm. this trade deadline because, yeah. you know, how many sellers are there um, if every if the playing game is operating. But I, I like the concept of you don't want to go full March Madness because <laughs> – at the end of the day, you do want the best players and the most marketable teams down. Uh, down, yes, no. You can get a seat and take in. Just give me a second uh, to finish this point. But, um, but you also get a little bit of that sort of winner go home, like sort of stakes that I think. I mean, really, the NBA's central problem and one that I think they know, but they are fighting against uh, just a lot of resistance on the revenue side, which I think is just. I mean, that's a whole topic for another day. Yeah, but. Um, the biggest problem is that there are not enough games that mean anything. And yeah. yep. now the, the plane really solves that problem. And as far as lottery reform, I, uh, you know, I think, um, I think it's worked out pretty well so far. I, I think it has de-incentivized the idea of being total crap. Uh, it has created a slightly new problem, which is going to rear its ugly head this year, potentially, which is, Draft pick protections. I know Tom Ziller wrote about that recently in his yeah. newsletter. Um, Minnesota's, but it is interesting to your point, though. It is interesting. You have lottery reform happening, and yet you also have this scenario where there there have been many more trades involving massive amounts of draft picks, and you have teams <laughs> that have very different incentives. Where some t- there, there are many more of those sort of win now versus win the future trades that have been facilitated in a good way. Um, and so I did, you would think it's interesting that that's happened. Um, Noah, let's see what you got. What's up, Noah? Hi. So I was actually hoping the NBA did this with the bubble. I think it's kind of an obvious thing just hanging there. But um, I think in, in each conference, uh, the seven to, to ten seeds should be put in a pool and the four best teams out of those uh, eight teams um, should, should go to the playoffs two in the west two in the east and you know it like if they're like nine deserving playoff teams in the west all those teams get the playoffs and then teams like the magic you know get a start at the lottery and don't get stuck mm. in that cycle mm. okay okay yeah so you're basically that as a way to sort of yeah fix conference imbalance yeah um, my idea I think that would have that would have been great in the bubble. I agree. Uh, yeah. Right now, I think you run into some of the same travel issues potentially that have prevented sort of the conference, the conference imbalance uh, that see the top one through sixteen uh, measures. Like you're going to have the same problems now. Um, but I think I, I think that's an interesting idea. Uh, I do think in general, I'd love to see. I'm very curious how this seven through ten thing plays out this year. I think it's going to be really interesting. I believe I saw somewhere that the Portland Memphis game had like really high ratings <laughs> last year. Am I right about that? I, does someone remember if that's true or I, not? I do. I do remember hearing they did well. Yeah, um, I think that's accurate, Mike. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but that's also you know, look, the NBA, uh, the bubble itself was really good at, you know, capitalizing on narrative too. There's nowhere for the narrative to escape. The Dame Lillard, you know, uh, um, Booker, et cetera, like explosions 
were easy to it's, sell. And I think it's you think that was it. But then why were ratings? Why were ratings so bad in the bubble in general? I think no, I think no, it was I, just Mike. I have other. There's other. There were other societal, uh, external uh, reasons for why people weren't focusing on sports. I yeah, I, I agree. But I think it's interesting that I think the fact that there were stakes. I think really is explains so much of that. I mean, oh, definitely, definitely. Like, like this is a this is Portland versus Memphis. These are not exactly big markets. Uh, so yeah. I think that that to me is like a really strong data point in how seventh these playing tournaments can be great. Um, okay, all right, so, does anybody have anything else? Oh, sorry, no. Go ahead. I was just to say, I guess to add on to, to to the travel thing, which is you know the issue with uh, reseeding the seventh and eighth seeds. I guess one way you could see it is you can see it as potentially um i guess like uh you know like if if you're the ninth seed in the west then one of the punishments for not getting a top eight not a punishment but you know a perk of getting a top top six seed would be the travel but then you know maybe because these series will probably be over in like four or five games anyways you could go with a different structure perhaps maybe I still am partial to the idea of you can pick your first round opponent. I just love that concept, but I don't think that's ever going to happen. Like if you're a high seed, you get to heavy. I think that'd be amazing. I would love that. Um, But yeah, I mean, maybe that's some other stuff to think about. Um, But I think it's interesting to see. It's going to be interesting to see how the plan works out this year. I think that'll give us some ideas. Um, Okay. Thank you, Noah. All right, Mike. All right, Ben. Do you, last before we fi- sign off here, do you have any other final questions or anything you no. wanted to, to talk about? No, this was uh, this was fun. I think, um, yeah, I think we should spend some time on Top Shot at some point. Uh, get a, get an expert on here. I saw there were some comments that of people who who are into it. I think it's it's just fascinating to me as a, as a commoditization of of what we don't really know the future will be for how we collect and think about sports. And I love that the NBA is trying to capitalize. So I do want to bring that in too. And also I think that's going to help open up a much larger umbrella of people who are interested in the sport too. Well, yeah, so that's, part of, yeah. that's interesting. Um, so, more yeah, to come on yeah, I have a, it's funny. I've had a number of my friends, I have a number of friends who work like kind of in some sort of financial service mm sector who asked me what is this top shot thing and i'm like i don't know man you explain it to me (laughs) so i feel like there's some fun crossover to that um so uh, at the end of the day conclusion what do you think about the state of the nba game right now good like just as like a general point do you think the nba is is in a good place i do I do. I think the state of the NBA is strong. I think it's helpful that they are able to have an MVP race with the old guard, the new guard uh, simultaneously. And at the same time, you know, folks like a, a Harden or a Giannis making a push right now, which have been, you know, the topic of conversation between those two can heat up again because that's fun. Um, I do think it's nice to see franchises that have been uh, dormant for a little while, um, you know, maybe like Phoenix, for example, back in the mix. Um, and again, stylistically, I think the top teams in the NBA are different. I know we talked about this, like this kind of homogenous uh, state of, of top basketball, but like, I think, I think you have a, a pretty nice diverse skill set of top players on best teams. I think the dichotomy between the Sixers and Nets will be apparent. I think it's still cool to see hungry teams that maybe overachieved last year, catching their step again now, like the heat. Um, and I'm, I'm just thinking the overall state of basketball is more intelligent, more aesthetically pleasing 
and I think a lot of times people need reminders of that. And so I would encourage everyone to go YouTube some games from the early 2000s, early 90s, the late 80s, uh, and get some perspective. Because I think we lose a lot of perspective um, when you watch great basketball on a night-in-and-night-out basis. Um, and then ulti- ultimately also when you're judging everything against sort of LeBron's era and the Warriors' um, dynasty – the game has just been thrown into a, a place that ha- it had to evolve so quickly. Um, and so I, I challenge everyone to go back and watch a little bit of the, the YouTube variety of, uh, of what basketball was. And I think you'll appreciate the now a little bit more as well. Yeah. I mean, I think I agree that in general, there is some nostalgia that drives people who are frustrated by all this yeah. uh, for sure. I, you know, I like, the old games for what they are. I think uh, <laughs> to me that very little that I've seen over the past few months has changed my overall theory and really the overall theory of the book that I'm writing, which is it has just changed too fast for us to understand a process or know what we're seeing. Like we are, the game is so different. The game has accelerated and changed in such dramatic ways that I just don't think anyone has really been able to wrap their finger around. We need time is what I'm saying. We need time to let the game breathe, to let innovation happen. Uh, you know, we're really only four or five years into people really embracing the three point shot, you know, and we're really 15 years since the hand checking rules were relaxed. We're 20 years since they started to allow zone again. I just think we need more time to see, to let this all play out, to let these sort of strategic innovations, you know, take hold. I think if you try to do too much with it, then it's just going to mess everything up. I think, you know, like I was saying, I think we need a defensive innovation, like, and yeah, I'd like to see that play over the next, out over the next couple of years. I'd like to see what people come up with, you know, that let the cycle play play out. And, and beyond that, I just think, you know, one of the central, a lot of the central problems are have very little to do with the game itself. I think the one problem is the sort of stakes element. I think there are too many games. I think the the argument for, well, we need to make, if we're going to cut 20% of the games, we need to make back more than that in revenue. Like, I think that's just faulty logic. Like, I think you have, you have to let, the change play out like that's just an unfair standard to set and that's going to prevent change from happening. I think we need more games with stakes. And I just think that the, te- the television product in terms of the voices that are presenting the game, the networks, the way that the, I think too many games sort of start to feel like a podcast on video form. Um, <laughs> lack of the lack of the fact that like some of the main broadcasters have not changed over in a while. Uh, when you compare that to, I think the NBC era in particular, I just think that there there's a presentation issue. But I've written that before. I think a lot of it is just we need to do a better job, tied again to how things have changed so dramatically. We need to do a better job of sort of illustrating what has changed uh, and sort of helping to explain it. Because I think the average viewer watches a game now, and it just for whether you like it more or whether you don't like it more, it just looks so different than the game that they watched in the nineties or in the early two thousands, or even in the mid two thousands, you know, we had, we had someone call in and say they started watching the game in 2012. Uh, the game is very different than it was in 2012. And so I just mm. think, I think we need some time to catch up. We need some time to kind of figure it out. We need some time to wrestle with, you know, our post pandemic world. You know, I all, I'm all for, you know, thinking about new ideas, but I think there's a risk in trying to do too much, I think yeah. we have to let the whole thing, let everything play out. Um, 
hopefully gain a better understanding of, because I just think too many fundamental truths are being challenged in a way that um, are perhaps being focused on a little too much. Um, and we just got to sit back and sort of see how things go. You know, just because things are the way they are now doesn't mean that they will be in the future. You've seen how much the game has changed in the last five years. You know, who's to say the next five years won't have twice as much change. That's right. That's the way I look I'm with at you. it. I'm with you. Um, cool. Good, good way to wrap it up, Mike. All right. Thank you so much for, for this chat. We'll be back next week at the same time, 3 PM on locker room. Uh, ben will probably hate, we now have to figure out what our next podcast is. I have a couple of ideas. <laughs> uh, or what the next Limited Outside podcast is with their whatever. Um, but thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. This has been the Limited Upside Podcast. Oh.